anxious to be inside. They like to be any place else, and it gets a little stressful sometimes, especially because you're in in the quarter, and kids got to get certain things done, and there's pressure to get it done, and they don't want to do that. It's extra work. It's hard work. So it's a little bit stressful for today. How was your day? Was it stressful? You have a heart. We know, we know the rich's day was good. He's got a heart. Uh, good. Praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's this time of year. They don't like to do the other. Yeah. Amen. Well, let's look at the Lord in prayer. We'll go right into this. Father, thank you so much. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, our Savior. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes us know who Jesus Christ is. And thank you for your word, always a faithful and true word, filled with promises and filled with goodness and filled with um, understanding. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in that book. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would open our hearts tonight. We need you. We openly admit that. Our faith is resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in ourselves. We know that we've not got anything to uh, contribute to this. We trust you. And that's all we're going to make be able to contribute. Thank you for what you're going to do, the way you're going to do it in us just now, in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of things. A couple of weeks ago, I received a gift from some very dear people in here. And it was a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, Mike, do you remember John Huffman? He, uh, he and Mr. Pinkerton and um, a couple of other really swell people have written a new book. I'll let you see that. It, it is just a beautiful, uh, heavy, um, it's a book of character traits, like 49 of them. And it's, it's stories of animals. Uh, years ago, we used a book called Character Sketches that we used to teach the kids some character sketches about different animals and about different people and things like that. Well, this is People and Animals again, and it is a gorgeous book. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. It really is a beautiful book, and I, I do really appreciate you sharing that with us. I was looking with Shar and sharing it with her, and she said, boy, this is really so. It's, it's a very... Um, detailed book there is a lot in that book so anyway um just a lot of a lot of good things to share with people tonight we're going to look at romans 8 so we'll we'll look at it you can turn your bibles there because i'm not sure how often i'll be going back and forth to it but um let's at least go to romans chapter 8 and just read a few of the verses there because i think this is um who is that i think it was d martin lloyd jones He's one of my favorites. Uh, he was a, a British pastor. Uh, I believe he's at Westminster Chapel, but that, I, don't quote me on that one because that would not be it. He said that the book of Romans is the engagement ring of the church. And he said Romans chapter 8 is the diamond in that ring because it describes to us what the life of a believer is like. And hopefully tonight we'll, we'll talk our way through some things that maybe you have heard before, maybe you haven't heard before, uh, but it's things I think that much of the church has known for several hundred years. 
Uh, so we're going to take a look at it. You know, I've been studying an awful lot of church history and reading a lot of the church fathers and just trying to figure out where, where we come from. What, what's this all about? How do we get so messed up? Because there are times that some things are just so messed up, you just scratch your head and say, where did that come from? What do they do that for? Um, and church history has taught me a lot of things about some very common battles that all churches go through. There are battles of mostly about who is Jesus Christ and what is this salvation really about? What is redemption really about? What role do I play in it, if any? What, what, is, what am I supposed to be in this thing? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 8 just a minute, this diamond of the engagement ring of the church. He says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, mine is a new American standard, and it stops right there. I think yours probably goes on to say something that, like, uh, um, who walk, um, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, something along those lines, okay? Um, let me just share with you a couple of things about church history and about biblical texts. Um, early on in church history, lots of letters were written back and forth. And people really appreciated getting right those letters. But letters would come out of Jerusalem up to Asia Minor. Or that's where Ephesus and Galatians and Colossians and all that is. Someone would come from Rome over to there, and then someone would come out of Asia Minor, or what's now Turkey, and they'd go to Rome and they go all over. Well, as people got those letters to their church, like, for instance, if the apostle wrote a church to the Edgemont Bible Church, it might, be, it might say to the saints and faithful brethren at the Edgemont Bible Church, and then we'd share it. And we'd read it out loud. And everybody, that's, that would be the book of Ephesians we just read out loud. We'll, tonight we'll call it the book of the Edgemont. And we'll just say we read it out loud. Well, as we read it, somebody's going to say, you know, I've got some friends in uh, Collinsville who need to hear that. Uh, and somebody else say, I got some friends in O'Fallon who need to hear that. And I got some friends. And so you would make copies of that. And then they would take it to their friends, and their friends would read it in their church. And sometimes that would be the whole morning message, just reading that letter. Um, it'd be, I would take one of these, and I'd go across the street to Grace, and I said, hey, the apostle sent us a letter today. I don't know if you guys got one recently. No, we haven't got one for a couple months now. Well, here, here's this one. And Grace Church will read it out loud. And then some people over there would copy it. And then people from there would say, I know some friends over so-and-so that need that place. And then they would make a copy of it and send it there. Well, goodness, that could go a lot of places. That could go from uh, Edgemont Bible Church, might go to Bangladesh, might send it to Steve. So there's going to be a copy of our letter that came to us found there. He's going to translate it into Bengali. There's something going to change when it goes to Bengali. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, and then there's somebody else that's going to say in Bengali, let's send it over to India. I've got some friends in India, and they're going to translate it into Hindi. And when they translate into Hindi, they're going to say, you know, our friends in Nepal need to hear this. So I'm going to send a copy of that, and they're going to translate it there. In all those copies, you're going to have differences. You follow what I'm saying? Now, I have the original. This is the one the apostles sent to us. I've got the original. 
Some of the copies may not look like this original because as some people were copying it, they may have heard if I said, there you go. What are you going to write down? You might write T-H-E-R-E. There you go. That'd be the correct way. But have you ever thought you were spelling T-H-E-R-E and you spelled T-H-E-I-R? That sometimes happened. And now when I get the letter or when somebody over here gets the letter and it says, there you go, they're going to read it and going to say, wait a minute, this is T-H-E-I-R. How does that how does that match? So somebody's going to try to correct it, and you wind up with several different copies that are, for the most part, identical. But some of them aren't. I have the original, so this is, this is the true one. Some of the copies may not be. May not be true to that. This is one of those situations. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is one of those situations in which a scribe may have taken what was supposed to be in verse 4 and moved it up to verse 1. The, the difference is going to be in that. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's about position. Remember the two words we talked about? Position, condition. Position, condition. Position is what God gives you. Conditions is how you're living with it today, this hour, next hour. That's your condition. Uh, you ever had a condition where, um, well, let me just say, your position is a human. Have you ever had a condition where you didn't feel good? Did you stop being a human because you didn't feel good? Well, no. Your position remained the same. But your condition today was, oops, I just ate something that didn't agree with me. I don't feel real good today, okay? So position and condition. The position is you are in Christ Jesus in this verse. If you add the second part, it becomes a conditional position. You follow me? If it's positional, it says here, uh, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then if I put this, this part of the verse on, it now becomes conditional. Your position is only good if you are walking according to the uh, walking according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. You follow the difference? Your position is not affected by your condition. I want to make sure that everybody sees that. Your position is not affected by your condition. You you may be out of fellowship with God, but that doesn't change your position your relationship to God is everybody following me so far all right well let's go just a little bit further here for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death uh, someone has compared this to the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics law of gravity is what keeps me standing right here I can jump but I can only jump so far I can only jump the amount of thrust I can get out of my skinny little legs. These little chicken legs don't get me very high up. Now, if I had some good, strong, powerful legs, like, like for instance, if I had Doug's legs on this frame, then 
I might be able to leap pretty high, but I don't. I have these little chicken legs, and it only gets me so high. What brings me back down again is gravity. But I can leave this, as I've done several times, probably many of you have too. I have left gravity just long enough to fly to India, to fly to Nepal. I've, I've lived in flown to, no, I did not fly to uh, Bhutan, now to think about it, just drove there. I have been able to fly lots of places and really defy gravity as long as there was enough thrust in the plane, as long as there was enough motivation to move that plane down, and as long as the wings were in function. Change the wings or change the engine, and I'm down. The same thing's true here. You are, the, the law of sin and death keeps you to the ground, keeps you defeated. But the law of the life of, spirit, life of the Spirit in Christ Jesus raises you above that law of sin and death. So you're not in that law anymore. Now you're in the law of whatever the life of, of Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is. All right? So both of them are about positions, aren't they? Not conditions. Positions. All right? So he goes on. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. In other words, the law could tell me what to do, but it couldn't show me how to do it. It couldn't guarantee that I could do it. It could tell me what to do. Um, God did it in, in another way, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So if you walk in the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you're going to stay flying. But if you walk in the other law, the law of sin and death, you're going to be grounded. Everybody follow where we're at? All right. He goes, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is even not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh. Your position is not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's your new position. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you're, if you're not in the plane, you're not going to go flying. If you're not in Christ, you're not going to be living. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't live. It's as simple as that. Okay? If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, you have a guaranteed resurrection if the spirit of Christ who was raised from the dead is in you. Everybody with me so far? All right. Let's depart from that just a minute. And I want to talk to you about Christ's death and resurrection did two things. This is from our notes tonight. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm saying that you probably have read the book, so I'm counting that you're you have read the book, so I'm not going to reread the book to you tonight. Christ's death and resurrection did two things. His death in my place 
substituted for my own death. For the wages of sin is death, all have sinned. I should have died. I should have had been separated from God forever. But I've not been because Christ took that separation for me, paid for it. That's called justification, okay? His death in my place substituted for my own death, for the wages of sin is death and all of sin, is justification. It justified me by taking my guilt for violating his law and nailed it to his cross, removing it from me by paying for it with his own life in place of mine. God therefore declared me not guilty before him as he accepted the death of Christ in the place of my own. I know that sounds rough, real basic stuff, and praise the Lord, it is. But what I, well, let me go on with it. Is everybody okay with what I just said here? These things here, all right. Anybody got questions or comments about these things we're saying here? Number two, he crucified the sin generator, maker, and creator in me, known as the old man, that which I inherited from Adam and generations of bent and broken people. Okay, so what he's done, when Doug White came into the world, he was already bent. He was bent like his parents. He was bent away from God. And I, I, didn't, I didn't want authority over me. I like to be taken care of, but I don't want people bossing me around. That's just basic child stuff, okay? Well, that, that bent in me kept me from wanting God to be around in my life as well. So he crucified that bent in me, to the, and he nailed that old man to the cross. That was the guy in me that generates sin. Now, I want to make sure we get this. That's not my personality. It's the thing that affects my personality. It's the thing that's going to make me either a bad boy and not one that's appreciated, uh, or it's going to be a number of things, but it's going to affect my personality, but it's not the same as my personality. Does that make sense to everybody? You, you have different things, different ways that you are uh, fashioned by God when, when you're in the womb. Some people know how to, uh, they just have skills with their fingers that can play piano. I'm not one of those. Some people have skills with their voice that they can sing well. Some people have skills with their body. They can do really good athletic things. Some have skills with their mind. They can do mathematics and science. Some have skills of all of it. The old man is not that personality. The old man is what's affecting that personality. I can have a mind that can do science and math that might turn around and create destructive tools to hurt people. That's the old man in me. That's not my personality. It's what's affecting my personality. Everybody follow me? I, I, can, I have eyes, but the eyes were made to behold God and to behold his world. But there's an old man in me that can take those eyes and turn them instead to lust. So I can have lust of the eyes. I can have lust of the flesh. And I got, I got a body. It's a good body. It's, it, it, it eats. It enjoys. It walks. It gets around. It helps me do things. <clears throat> it's good. But the old man can use it for exactly the opposite things. I can walk to the wrong places. I can see the wrong things. I can hear the wrong things. You follow me? That's not my personality. That's an old man that was in me. That's what Jesus crucified. God took that old man and laid it on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when Christ died, that old man died with him. And then when Christ is buried, that old man's dead too. Everybody follow me? It's removed from me. It's not mine anymore. When Christ is raised from the dead, he's going to make a new man for me that now is united to Christ. That's going to affect my personality too. All right? That Holy Spirit that's now bound me to, uh, bound my uh, personality to that new man is going to be having me do different things. Now I can say thanksgiving instead of griping all the time. Now I find myself able to praise the Lord that I wasn't before. Didn't even know the Lord before. But now I praise the Lord. Something changed in me. And it was that new man that was born in me, all right? So, but anyway, let's go to this. This is what the, the death on, on the cross is doing. Number three, I'm free from the old man and his influences in my life. I still live with the habits and practices he left in my flesh through years of habituation, but these do not have the power of condemnation anymore and can be defeated by the second aspect of his death. So we're just talking about what his death did right now. Everybody with me? That's all I'm talking about, the death side of the death and resurrection of Christ. What does the death of Christ do for me? <clears throat> Ultimately, I'll be removed from the presence and power of sin when my resurrection is completed. Number four, this action takes care of my legal issue with God. I am guilty before him of failure to trust him, having other gods before him, then violating all his law because of these bent conditions. Because I didn't trust God before and I trusted me or some other human, because I didn't, I didn't see that God is the only God, I had all kinds of things before, before him. Because of those bents, I did my own thing. Lying was to protect myself. I, 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 I don't mind bearing false witness against somebody if it's going to keep me out of trouble. I don't mean I don't mind doing character assassination of somebody. Just calling them names. That's the equivalent of murder. That's if I'm going to just tear somebody down with my words. That's the same as murder. So there are a number of things that I did that proved that bent in my life. That's what he's nailing to the cross. I'm now free from that old man. Okay. <clears throat> this action takes care of my legal issue. God says, "Son." The wages of sin is death. You have sinned against me. Because you've sinned against me, I therefore require your life. You belong to me. I'm the one that created you. And because you have failed to live up to my code, you failed to live up to trusting me and that sort of thing, you're done. You're toast. I'm, I'm telling you, you're going to die. Well, Christ stepped in my place and said, Father, I will take that. And that legal issue, the Father is willing to let the Son take my guilt, my condemnation, and put it on his own Son so that his own Son could do that. That's what the death of Christ is doing for me. Everybody with me? That's what the death of Christ is doing. All right? I'm guilty before him of failure to trust him, having other gods before him, and then violating all his law because of this bent condition. His death in my place ended the way God looked at me in his presence. So just imagine a court scene here, because that's why this is a legal situation. I have God here. He is looking down at me, 
And I'm, I'm, as I'm looking back at him, I'm, I can hear him say, on that day that you said, I'm going to do so-and-so, you acted like you were in charge of your life. I could have taken your life that afternoon. You would never have done what you said you were going to do. You see, Doug, you don't have the power to carry out what you said you're going to do. You don't have the power to carry out your word. I have power to carry out my word. That's what makes me God. You're not. But you acted like you were God. On that day that you lied to your parents about where you were, who did you think you were fooling? I knew exactly where you were. Now, you may have fooled your parents. But in fooling your parents, you made them think you were somebody you're not. And they talked to their neighbors about, you can't say that about my son because he said he didn't do that. And we believe our son. Okay, well, I just misrepresented a whole lot of things there. I just put my parents in a place that's a bad place. Look, everything that I did, and he's looking at me and saying, you're guilty. How are you going to plead? How else can I plead? He's got all the facts. I'm, there, he is the witness. He's watched it all. Every angel in the world watched that happen. They all know that what I've done. They've got a way to tell him. But now what happened when Christ died for me, the Father allowed Christ to be in my place. And now what happens? That when the Father looks at me, he's seeing me through Jesus. He's looking through Jesus because I'm in Christ. He's looking at Jesus now and Jesus' full righteousness. And that's what he's seeing in me now. He's not seeing me as a sinner anymore. Christ has covered all that. He's got that taken care of, and I'm in Christ. That's the way God sees me now. He sees me as fully forgiven, fully not guilty, and in Christ. <clears throat> That's what the first part does. But his resurrection has given me eternal life in union with God and the eternal life in him. That's transformation. So he took care of justification, but at this point, you follow with me, at this point, I, everything's been paid for, all my sin is paid for, and I am a big zero in life. I don't have anything on my account right now. I am paid in full. Now, the problem is, um, if you're going to buy groceries next week, just because you have this week's grocery bill paid for doesn't mean you'll get next week's groceries. What do you have to have to get next week's groceries? More money, right? You're going to have to have something in there to be able to buy next week's groceries. If you don't have the money in your account and you go there and you say, Sir, I'd like to get those groceries on credit. Uh, no. You took too long to pay it last time. You're not a safe risk. I know you don't have any money. Everything's paid in full. We're, we're at zero balance here, Doug. Don't worry about a thing. But I'm not giving you more groceries. You don't have the money for it. The resurrection of Christ put into your account the billions of God's wealth. Are you following where we're coming from? You're not just a zero anymore, kids. It's not just a paid-for zero account. What he did now was take all the righteousness of Christ, and he put that into your account. That's what you've got now. 
So you have money to buy the groceries next week. Everybody follow me? You're not going to do it on credit next week. You're going to do it because God's gift to you was his wealth. The wealth of his grace, the wealth of his righteousness has been given to you. That's what the resurrection does. The death of Christ brought you to a zero balance. But the life of Christ, the resurrection, gave you a positive, righteous balance. All right? His resurrection has given me eternal life. Number one, this action of Christ's death has declared me not guilty, but it did not make me righteous. It took care of all my sinful negativity, but it could not give me positive righteousness. I have no positive righteousness of my own since all my works are as filthy rags. Now, before him. Now, look, if Christ had lived his life as good and righteous as it was, and the Father was willing to let Christ die for my sins, but he didn't raise Christ from the dead, then my sins might have been paid for, but I'm in no better place than Christ would be if he's not raised from the dead. I wouldn't be raised from the dead either. Christ wasn't raised. I'm not raised, but that's not the story. It's by his resurrection now that a life is given to me, all right? So his resurrection from the dead proves the acceptability of his offering of his life in the place of mine. God has accepted the death of his righteousness, perfect, holy, sinless son in my place as the removal of my crimes against God. God has accepted this offering as sufficient for the lives of all who have been against him, and we are no longer guilty. But with the resurrection, now watch verse number three there, with the resurrection, God has exchanged my guilty, unrighteous, unbelieving life with Christ's righteous, holy, obedient, faithful life. I now have complete righteousness of Christ dwelling in me. I am now the righteousness of God in him. To this, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, let me share with you why I'm doing this. Tonight's lesson is about reckoning from Romans chapter 8. You cannot reckon what you do not know. And I want, you, I want you to know for sure what has happened to you so that you can reckon. All right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, and let's come down to verse 21. He made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He did not know sin. He didn't ever do sin himself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So God's giving him all our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what the resurrection does for you. Whereas the, the death gets you at a zero balance and a paid account, the resurrection puts you on a positive side, gives you positive righteousness, and not just any righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. So as he says here, you are the righteousness of God in him. Number four in our outline. The action of the resurrection has now given me victory over the old man, over sin, 
over all things related to the activity of the old man in me. I am a new creature, and I am being progressively changed every day into the image of Christ, the Lord and King. That's what's happening to me. So the day that I begin to understand what this process is, is the day that I can look now and no longer wonder why am I going through this struggle. This struggle is what Christ went through and how he's going to make you into the image of Christ. And it doesn't matter whether that's a good struggle or it's an easy road or it's a hard struggle. He's conforming you to the image of his son. Please don't think that God gave his son, that's the divine son that's in heaven, where does he send him to live? Good grief. Think about it. this is This is the, what the incarnation, that's what this is all about, okay? He sends him to live among the Jewish people in an occupied time where the Romans are in charge of everything. Pagans are in, heathens are in charge of the world, and the Jews are having to live under it. He sends him at a time when the Sadducees are running the temple. And they're a, they're a corrupt bunch. They're not running it properly. Where the Pharisees have, they've just kind of rewritten the Bible. And they're just writing their traditions off to the side here, and they're living by the traditions. You've got people who are very confused. You've got a number of people who are um, zealots. They're ready to overthrow the Roman government. They're they're doing terror activity all the time. Then you've got another whole group that said, forget it all. And they've gone to live out in the wilderness. And they're living out there as if that somehow that's going to make a new community for them. It wouldn't. It didn't. Coming at a time, and of all places, he sends them to Mary and Joseph who haven't got much going for them. And they, they can't even come back to live in Bethlehem where they, they, they were, uh, Jesus was born because they know their, their lives are at risk there. So they have to go up to Nazareth. Okay, now let me see if I, where could, where could I describe? If you had to go live, oh, I've got to be careful how I say this one. If you had to go live in the Ozarks of Arkansas, okay? Now, I know that that's sounding kind of rustic and fun and all that stuff, but until you've lived there in a place that knows how to only grow rocks uh, it's and trees, it can go to trees too. The trees are there to kind of break up the rocks so that there can be some soil sometime or another in there. And where there are, are people trying to eke out a living, that's Nazareth. Now, you've got angels waiting on you day and night. You've got the beauty of heaven, and your dad sends you incognito, not, not with trumpets blowing and not with really nice palace and all that to live in. No, he's sending you to Nazareth. And he's sending you among a people who are considered the rednecks and the hillbillies of the whole world because that's what Nazareth was. That's in Galilee. And everybody in Judea and Jerusalem thought of them as 
the hokey hillbillies, they just don't get it. That's where the rednecks live. That's where Jesus was sent. He did not give his son an easy life. Everybody follow that? Why? Because his son would learn obedience through the things which he suffered, Hebrews tells us. Not through the easy life. He's going to identify with every low-living person as well as the high-living person because he knows how the lowly live right now. He knows how the humble live. He knows what they're like. Everybody see that? That's what he sent into. Why should we believe then that we who belong to him should have a better life than he did? Why should we think that the process God would take to conform us to the image of his son should be a gentler, softer life than the one he had? There's no reason for it. You follow me? Every challenge that comes up to you today now, now that the resurrection has happened and now that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, every challenge that comes up is an opportunity for you to learn how to give thanksgiving, to learn how to walk in the Spirit, to learn how to be a grateful person instead of a, a complainer, to learn how to walk holy, to learn how to love people who aren't lovable. You, it's, that's what he's given us. And that's the process he's taking us through, okay? <clears throat> Number five, I'm being changed. Now, this is where it gets interesting, guys. I am being changed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. Let me show you that one. Look at, well, you're still in the book of 2 Corinthians. Just turn over to chapter 3 just for a moment. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 17. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Listen, you don't have to hide. You don't have to cover up your face to see the glory of the Lord. You, you see Jesus, okay? Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Everybody follow that? So you're being changed from glory to glory to glory. Every day is becoming a more glorious part of your life. Every day that you're walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Every day that you're understanding I'm not condemned. Every day that you're reckoning on what life you have been given in Christ Jesus. Every day that you're doing that, you're getting more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to remind you, the Lord Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. So what are you becoming more and more like? Let's go on a little further here. I am being changed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness. I'm being changed into a son of God like Christ. I'm being, uh, it, this is called theosis. I'm being transformed to become like God. I am in union with God because of Jesus. Everybody follow what we're coming here, what we're saying here? You are being shaped right now to become a son of God. You know what he calls the angels? Sons of God. 
you are being transformed right now to be like God. That's what's going on in your life every day. Now I say, when that resurrection is completed, that's what you will be, like the Son of God. Now, some say, well, matter of fact, it was Athanasius, one of the church fathers, who said this. God became carnate. In other words, the incarnation. Jesus became one of us that we might become one of them. Think your way through that. God takes on flesh that flesh might take on God. Are you following me here? Look with me at uh, back to Romans chapter 8 again because I want to show you why another reason this is called the diamond or the diamond in the ring of the engagement ring. Okay. <clears throat> That's Romans chapter 8. Let's pick up on verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So, guys, are you getting that? There's some glory that's to be revealed in us. Uh, Colossians 3 reminds us, when Christ, who is our life, appears, so shall we also appear with him in glory. Glory is what they described God as having, all right? Here we go. Verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the what? It's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, right? Um, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You right now are a child of God if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. But you are a child that's going through a process of maturity. What is going to happen to you? When you get your resurrection body, you're going to be a son of God. All grown up. Everybody follow that? Sometimes people don't like, like to think like that because they think that you're going to become God. You can't become God ontologically. Now, that sounds like a big word. That just means the study of being. You, you can't be God. You have been created by God, so you can never be God. Um, your, your creation can never be you. You follow that? When he makes you in his image, you are his image, not him. All right? Now, that's, that's going to be important because, guys, you are becoming sons of God. You are going to replace the sons of God who rebelled against God. Let me, let me go on further. Number six. 
This process of theosis or becoming like God is the reason for the incarnation. God became man that man might become like God. We were made in the image of God in the first place. The action of the death and resurrection of Christ restores the original intent. So the, res the, the death of Christ takes the old man and kills that. That process is dead. That, that is your judgment. You, you follow? That is the judgment of your sin. Christ is taking the judgment of sin. Everybody who doesn't trust Christ, they still have to be judged for their sin. That's the destruction. That's the separation from God forever. You've already been through your separation. You've already had your separation. Jesus suffered that separation for you. Okay? If you're not, that's, that's not something you're going to go through. The rest of the world is going to go through a separation from God that is eternal. That's what hell is. Okay? <clears throat> Number seven, we become gods in the same way the angels or divine heavenly beings were gods. He called them gods. He called them Elohim. As created beings, they could only share divinity as much as God would impart to a created being. They could not be gods ontologically from their being since they were, are created beings with no origin of being within themselves. In other words, they didn't create themselves. Uh, God didn't create himself. God is, period. Uh, that's his name. I am what I'm going to be. I, I am it. Okay. That is why he called them sons of God. Peter has already said that we become partakers of the divine nature. If you are a partaker of the divine nature, what does that put you as? That's, that's divine, guys. If you're partaking with the divine nature, if that's what you're hooked to, Jesus even said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Well, whatever the vine is, what the branches are too. I, I know you can graft things in, but, but know this, guys. You're, you are the branches that have been hooked into the vine, and the vine is the Son of God. So what does that make you? Yeah, you are now children of God that are on your way to becoming sons of God. All right. It is this participation with the divine nature of God that makes us God-like. He has called us now the children of God as long as we are in these earth tents. The process will be complete when we have our new resurrected spiritual bodies. We'll be called then sons of God. We're just not mature yet. We're, we're not old enough in this. So let's talk about the, anybody have any question about what I did there? What I wanted you to get the, the truth of it. Yes. When he comes back for us in the rapture, then everybody that's over here in this cemetery and all the cemeteries around who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're coming out of those. You're going to be changed. All of those are going to be reunited with their spirits, and we're all going to be resurrected. That's when we become the sons of God. But um, you, don't, you don't get that. When, uh, when our loved ones are gone right now, 
They are in heaven in disembodied spirits. Paul calls that they're naked. They're waiting for their house. Right now, they don't have, they're not wearing anything. They're just spirits. You follow that? But a resurrection has to take place because they're human spirits. Humans have bodies, and you'll have to be resurrected again. But right now, they are spirits living in the presence of the Lord. Souls. They're not, I, I don't know how you would recognize them. Since we're used to recognizing, seeing tents all around, these are the earth earth suits that we're all looking at. That's how we get used to seeing each other. But I think, I know what I'll say. When somebody's talking to you on the phone, do you know it's them? Yeah. But you're not seeing them. You are talking to that the spirit of that person. Yeah, they're using their body, but you're talking to the spirit of that person. And you, you, uh, even when they're a long distance from you, if, if you, if you were blinded and they came in the room, you couldn't see them anymore, you heard their voice, would you know who it was? Sure you would because you, you know their personality. You know what they're, what they're talking like. Right? Well, let, let me get this to you. Number eight, faith is accepting these truths as truth in our own minds and hearts. It is coming into complete agreement with what God has said is true. So if you've understood the things that we were talking about here, faith is trusting what those things were. It's trusting what God has said in his word is true about you, that you are children of God in the process of becoming sons of God. That's faith. All right. But reckoning is applying that faith to the practice of our lives and living as the beings he's made us. <coughs> The children of God, our Heavenly Father. You follow me? So faith is, is uh, trusting those things to be absolutely true. It's accepting those truths as real truth. It's saying, that's what I am. It, it doesn't matter what you're, what, what you're living like right now. It doesn't matter whether you're sick. Your position is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you are tall, small, whatever it is. Your position is in Christ Jesus. That's why I've tried to say it, tell us before. Your identity is as a child of God, not as husband, wife, mother, father. Those are roles that you're playing as a child of God. You follow that? They just help you decide what, in this role, what am I supposed to be like? You know, uh, <coughs> Rich, I know you like to talk about your family and, and I'm with you there. Here's what I can know. Your role as a father when you were younger and they were younger is different than your role as a father now, isn't it? But your identity wouldn't change the whole time. You'd still be a child of God the whole time. But now you have to recognize that things have changed in our condition with each other, and I have to behave differently with them now. I can't just tell them, I said, go to bed, and they go to bed. My 40-year-old children just don't do that, you know? You understand what I'm saying? It just doesn't work that way, and it's not meant to work that way. You, you're knowing that you're going to change that role, but you won't change who you are. 
That's why I'm trying to tell you, don't identify you as Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Don't try to identify yourself as pastor. Don't try to identify yourself. Those are all roles. Make sure you're identifying yourself as the child of God because that's what you're going to keep on being for eternity. I'm a child of God operating as a pastor of a church. I'm a child of God operating as a, a carpenter, a home repairer, a odd jobs guy. That's what I'm doing. That's my role. I am, um, I'm a child of God operating as a retired military man, whatever that means. You know, you can define all that role all you want to, but roles are different from identity. So make sure you're keeping your identity. Faith is accepting my identity. Reckoning is how I'm going to apply that faith in this role. How am I going to apply this faith in this position, in this, in this circumstance I'm in right now? What does God want me to do as a child of God? I've just been invited to one of my best friend's homosexual wedding. What am I going to do? Ouch. I, I, I. Believe me, this is happening a lot more all the time, okay? You follow where I'm coming from? How does a child of God behave in that situation? And if you're looking for someone to give you a steady answer, forget it. You're not going to get a steady answer. A continuous uh, one answer applies to all. It won't work that way. You're going to have to figure out what you're really going to do as you look over what is it going to say about the Lord Jesus Christ, What's going to be the ultimate outcome of that as we go to that? There's going to be a lot of questions you need to ask as you, as you work your way through that. You follow that? That's why you're a child of God, given the wisdom of God from God. That's what Jesus went through every day. You follow that? That's what he was doing every day. He's listening to the Father. What do I do here? What do I do here? Who do I say? How does he know what 12 disciples he's going to accept? His dad showed him. And he's doing what his dad said. He said, my father draws men to me, and whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Okay, that means that Jesus is going to accept whoever dad puts in front of him. Today, it's a leper. Uh, this afternoon, it's a blind man. Today, it's a, a publican climbing up a tree. If Jesus were going to practice what the Pharisees did, there's not a way in the world he's going to go to a Pharisee's house, not a way in the world he's going to go to a publican's house. No way. Yet he did. He was never afraid. He knew he was never going to be affected. His position would never change. He's always going to be the son of God. Wherever he goes, he's taking Son of God with him. And that's what you're going to do as well. You are a child of God, and you're going to take the child of God with you wherever you go and whatever you do. All right? Comments, thoughts? All right, let's go to the practice of reckoning. Since Christ's death and resurrection accomplished two distinct things blended into one action, so, too, our reckoning is to be in two stages in a unified movement. So, since Christ had two things that happened, we're going to respond two ways. We must reckon our old man to be dead 
and our freedom from sin and its penalty. You've got to reckon that to be true. You, believing it's true, you've heard the theory, you've heard what it said, that Christ, the old man's crucified, he doesn't have an effect anymore, and you're, you, if you let experience show you that, yes, you do, then you're going to wipe out. Okay? Um, we must reckon our old man to be dead and our freedom from sin and slavery and, and its penalty. This reckoning is to be sure I do not count on living my life in the self-effort of the way of the old man. What we used to do was that whenever we started feeling guilty or feeling bad about things, we'd either run from God and go, to go someplace else as far as we could get away, or sometimes we would just go and we'd say, I feel guilty of my sin. I think I'll go to church. I'll start going to church now. God, if you'll, if you'll just wipe this thing out for me, I'll go to church every Sunday for at least three months. Well, for a month and a half anyway. Okay, for four weeks, I'll give you three, all right? But, and, and Lord, if, if you'll help me with this situation right here, I promise I'll give money to the church. I'll, I'll, I'll give at least $15. Well, it's 15 more than I ever gave in my life. So, but but that, you, you understand what I'm saying? That was our way. I'll, I'll, I'll show you I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm working harder. I'm trying better. I'm going to turn on this, and I'm putting these cigarettes away. I'm not going to smoke them anymore. Yep, I, that's it. The last one. No, mostly. Maybe. You understand? That was our, and that's what the old man did. It promised all kinds of things, and it really believed it could do it. That, that's, uh, I don't mean this wrong, but that's one of the reasons I never got behind promise keepers. If I'm already not doing good with it, why do I go join a group of men to make myself look even more stupid as I don't do what I promised them I'd do? You know what I'm saying? I already was in problem. My old way of doing things was to promise I'd do this and, and to act like I'm really good. And I did good. Anybody ever um, decided that you were going to lose weight and you're, you're going to exercise and you're going to do all this kind of stuff? And, man, for about the first two weeks, three days, whatever it was, you were on it. But then that day came when your knee hurt. Oh, oh, I, I can't do anything with this knee today. Oh, man, this is terrible. I'm going to go ahead and go to work. I'm going to go ahead and do this other. But I can't do the exercise today. Man, this thing is killing me. I think I'm going to go to the doctor later today. I know I'm not, but I think I'm going that was my old way. If you reckon the old man to be dead, stop it. You know you're not going to keep that stuff, so stop making those kind of silly promises, okay? Um, if, I'm, if I'd reckon that way, it says, I'm going to live a simplified life of less and less rules that I won't keep and more and more loving God and my neighbor as myself. I'll look to the teachings of Jesus as my standard and not condemn myself when I fail. God is no longer condemning me, and I have no right to do more than him. If God's not condemning me, then i got to stop doing that myself because all I'm doing is making myself feel guilty so that I can make myself promise that I'll get better, and I won't get better because I'm not going to follow through. Number two, this reckoning depends on humility and trust, so I'm not always judging myself as to whether I'm righteous enough. I want to live free of the guilt of making fig tree aprons to snow God into believing I'm pretty good after all, and he got a pretty good deal when he got me. I am no longer living from my friend's estimate of my goodness either. I do not surprise myself when I do not live up to my expectations or those of my friends. 
God is now my standard of goodness, and living to please him is the new standard. Let's go on the next page. This reckoning means that I focus on what God has done and is doing in my life to make me just like Jesus. I will not focus on what God has said is dead. If he says the old man's dead, I'm not going to sit around and keep focusing on the old man. If I'm reckoning the old man to be dead, then stop talking about that guy. Matter of fact, I don't even think it's wise to go back and keep reviewing with everybody what a glorious past history you had. You know, they, they, uh, I was in rock and roll bands, and when I got out of them, it was, a, it was a big deal to a lot of people. And everybody kept wanting me to give my testimony. And for a little while, I tried that. And after a while, I realized, this is dumb. There is no point in giving this testimony because it, it made me have to relive my past as if reliving my past. Uh, how did Paul give his testimony? I was one who destroyed the church. That was bad news, guys. And then he moves on. He doesn't sit around and tell you, one night I went over and I rested this couple, and they were an old couple, and, and they trusted Jesus, and they, they did all this Jesus talk. I couldn't handle it anymore, so I took all their furniture and everything. I burned it. He's, he's not reviewing that junk. You understand? I persecuted the church and put people in jail, but God met me and saved me. That's enough. And that's what I started using. And guess what? I didn't get asked to be going to youth groups anymore because there, there wasn't enough ugliness. You need to hear the drama, the ugliness. It's got to be out there. Where, gee, what a waste of time, okay? If God has dealt with me, it reckons me to he has done as thorough a job as needs to be done that can be done. Reckoning means I do not focus on my sinfulness, which God has already canceled in my life, but on my transformation into a child of God he intends me to be. Reckoning means I focus on the nuts and bolts of faith and trust. He said, I'm a branch of him. I'll focus my attention on that intimate relationship to him and make sure that all my systems are free of clutter so that the Holy Spirit may flow freely through me. I will not seek to produce fruit, but to bear it. Therefore, I will look at every event, whether deemed good or bad, as equal in their goal of making me bear fruit that Christ wants to produce in me. Reckoning means I will focus on thanksgiving and anticipation to see what next blessing is cleverly hidden in this most recent crisis. I will focus on his words, commands, teachings, and life to see where I am to go or be next. I'll focus on listening to the Spirit through the Word of God, creation, and my relationships with people. You've got so much to learn in creation. There's a lot of things that you can learn. That is God's first communication with people was creation. His second communication was His Word, and that's the one that defined a lot of things. This reckoning means that I have no expectation of others either. They are free of my useless judgment. I will offer counsel from the Word of God if requested and always seek restoration to life in Christ for myself and my brothers and sisters. Fair enough? That's what this reckoning accomplishes, that the old man is dead. Now, what about the reckoning about my having a new life? We must reckon our new man to be sinless and in full union with Christ, the Son of God. Faith means I will accept as true all that God has said about saving me. No one or nothing from outside me can defile me. 
I reckon that my heart has been cleansed by the process of the cross and the empty tomb. I'll be more bold and courageous with my faith and action since I know from this reckoning that I'm no longer under condemnation. In other words, I'm not, I'm not having to muster up boldness and courage because I am now recognizing nothing can hurt me anymore. I already have courage. You follow me? You, you can't kill me. I'm already dead. If, if I'm really dead in Christ, then you, you, what are you going to do to me? Hurt me? Send me home? Oh, please don't send me home. Oh, please. Jesus lives there, okay? Well, let me go on. Under this reckoning, I know I have discernment and the mind of Christ. I'll trust the Word of God. I'll test the Spirit to see if they're of God when they are not. If I cannot rid the area of them, I will rid myself of the area. With this reckoning, I know I have greater purpose than trying to build a political economic kingdom of Christ on earth. I'll seek godly justice and mercy for all people, but I will not overestimate the power of the adversaries and the enemies of the cross and believe they have to give in to me on this side of Christ's coming. I will not fear them. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I will seek to fight these battles on higher ground and not get sucked into the earthly, unwinnable battles that accomplish nothing, even if won. With this reckoning, I know I have been brought with a price, I do not belong to me anymore. I am not my own master. I know that in my life it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I am now living, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is his life that I want coming through me, and I must reckon it to be so. With this reckoning, I will halt my anxiety and worry and focus my attention on God's care for me and my brothers and sisters. I'll set my focus on things above where Christ is seated on the right hand of the Father, not on things on earth. It is where I will set my heart and therefore my treasure. All right? That's the faith and reckoning. Reckoning on Romans chapter 8 reminds me that I have been chosen by God. I have been given everything I need by God. I'm in a process right now that I'm being changed from glory to glory, that as I'm in that process, I don't need to be worried about a lot of other things. Yeah, there's things that are going to affect my role. Like it or not, relationships are going to affect your role. There are times that the relationships that we think we ought to have uh, are, are not going to fall through real well. Sometimes they're going to fall apart. Just remember this. Didn't change your position. Changed nothing with you. And this is one more challenge he's given you to live your way through it as Christ would live. He will go with you through it. You will not go alone. You will never go alone. You, promise, you follow where we're coming from? Because he said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. He's going to be with you. Don't, don't give up on it. Reckon that to be true. Make an application of that. Put it to, to work. Thoughts, comments? Anybody have anything you want to? Right. Without the resurrection, you're not saved. That's correct.
I, without the resurrection, I don't know what you would be. I mean, yeah, I mean, just if we're not a child of God, we must, at the very least, remain what we were. Well, uh, you would be you'd be forgiven. Forgiven, yeah. But no home. But what about future sins? Well, that would be too much speculation for me because that isn't the way God worked it out. He worked it out so there would be a resurrection. Uh, I think you'd be still separated from God. You know, if, if, I, can, if I can say it this way, um, all the animals that were killed during the, the, the uh, temple period, not one of them ever was raised from the dead. But neither were the, the followers of that ever taken to heaven. They were, they were placed in the bosom of Abraham, awaiting a day that some resurrection would take them. So it would be, a, I think, a, a situation similar to that. There was no resurrection during the temple period, and those people all lived in the bosom of Abraham, but not in the presence of God. So uh, we're not, our sins are not washed away by blood of bulls and goats. Right. Uh, but they were covered. They are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes. But the resurrection did happen. So, so uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that's, that's too much speculation. I don't know how to make a speculation on something that there wasn't even a possibility for. Matter of fact, that, that's sort of answered in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, where uh, Paul says it like this. He says, um, now if Christ has preached that he has, uh, he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead... Not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, he's saying that as a possibility, but it, isn't, it, it is not what happened. The resurrection did happen. So, there we go. Right. And, and no need to really speculate on what, exactly. what we would have been if it wasn't. Exactly. Yep. All right. Anybody have anything else? This, this is important stuff. I hope you're seeing it. This is, this is what makes us live as Christians. This is what gives us the freedom to live as Christians. And sometimes it takes a long time just to grasp what this is. But it starts with faith, doesn't it? If I can learn to accept these things to be true, then reckoning follows. If I can't accept them to be true, if I say, that just doesn't seem possible to me, that just doesn't seem, then I know I'm going to have to wait a little bit longer until I can finally say, I get it. I get it. I understand. 
Yes. Yes, it is. Even, even the belief that we have is like a growing up process. There are some things that you just don't get right away. And that's why we want to be careful when we tell children, yeah, you're, you're going to heaven because uh, you said you were a Christian when you were three. Well, just be careful saying that. You, you don't know what you're saying. You, you aren't able to say that. Do you follow that? Because the only one who can really say that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he didn't tell you that specifically, then you ought to be a little careful about what you're saying. Because that child, if they did trust Jesus at three, I bet you they didn't understand everything there is to know about what Jesus is or what he's got going. So give them a chance to grow up. Keep teaching them the truth. That's, that's some of those you may see. Uh, you'll see some 30-year-old person say, you know, allegedly, I trusted Jesus when I was three, but I didn't. And they'll tell you other things, and they'll tell you some ways they wandered from the path. And then when I was 28, you know, all of a sudden, I now understand Jesus. Yeah, that would be perfectly normal. You say, well, were they saved when they were three then? What difference does it make now? If, if now is when they are, are saving, are being saved, why are you worried about what would have happened at three or six, 10, 13? Doesn't make any difference now that 28 there's trust in Jesus. Okay. All right. Well, we've got plenty of good things to pray for. You've got um, people who are going through some struggles. Everly, um, Deanna's daughter, um, three years old. As leukemia, that's one that's really worth praying for. Versi's still worth praying for. There's still a lot of people who are going through some things physically that are problems. You still have some people who are going through things, some spiritual things. They haven't yet figured out who Jesus is, and they're wrestling with it. Some of them are just outright fighting it. They, they don't, they don't want to trust Jesus Christ. They, they don't want to be what mom and dad are. They don't want to be what so-and-so is. I, I don't like the church. Whatever it is, let help. Pray that God will open their eyes to see. No, no, son, no daughter. That's not what you're fighting. You're you're fighting the fact that you don't want to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. I get it, but stop saying it's got something to do with mom and dad. It's got something to do with whatever, whatever. All right. So anybody can pray that would like to pray, and then um, I'll close in prayer when that I hear a sizable. Silence. Father, I thank you that you have declared that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus at this very moment. And we thank you that you've given us the spirit to walk in that newness of life. And I ask that you would give each one of us here at this one Bible church the open doors to um, be a encouragement to one another to maybe a stranger that we bring into our lives that professes to, to know you and uh, to the extent that we know that we can uh, be a help to those who are struggling with certain situations in their life maybe because we went through it also. We ask that you would open that door and bring them to us and bring us to them. May our words not be ours, but yours. 
And so we uh, do bring to many here who are going through physical ailments. Maybe we would grant them your healing, but in the process of healing, uh, they have open ears to hear what you may be uh, sharing with us. Maybe not keep it to ourselves, but to share it with others also. Thank you for the various ministries here at the Edgemont Bible Church. We're one of the youth groups and the um, home Bible studies and much more. We pray that it may be a time of edifying one another, but being that light in this dark world around us. And we just ask for your discernment to refrain our eyes and ears to what we are faced with each day on TV or whatever, and to uh, set our thoughts upon you, so we know that we need your grace to do so. So again, we uh, just ask for your direction with the Edgemont Bible Church that you may uh, be found faithful at your coming. Father, even as we're in here, I know that in other rooms of this building, of these buildings, there are young men and women that you are speaking to through your word, through the verses they're memorizing, through the people they get to be around, through the devotions, maybe even through the games, that they need Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm asking, Father, that for the sake of Christ Jesus, you'll take the message of Christ and bring it home to their little lives. That somebody may trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior yet tonight. Before it's all over, Father. Before this meeting is, is past. That they may see the need and trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For someone else, Father, I pray that for the sake of Christ, you'll speak to their heart tonight. Of where their life is headed. And what calling you might have on that life. 
I pray that you'll give them a vision of what you might do with them as they fully surrender to you. Thank you, Father, for the callings that you are still giving people to take the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere, to live out our lives as fully redeemed people, as people who have been born again. Thank you for what you will do there. We think of our friend's mercy, Father. We ask in Jesus' name that you will give her grace and peace and strength tonight, Father, that her body's processes will be working all this uh, chemistry that she's been taking or the chemicals that she's been taking in her body and that her body will be able to fight off whatever is necessary to fight off to bring it back up to a level that she can get the last treatment in. Thank you for what you're going to do for her. For little Everly, Father, three years old, I, I just do not grasp how leukemia gets a hold on a three-year-old, but I know you know exactly what's going on there, and you know what you can do when asking that as the healer, as the Lord who takes care of all these things, that you minister great healing to little Everly, strength to Deanna and to Stephanie and to Doreen, that the, these ladies, Father, will see the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ doing a great work. And I thank you for what you'll do. Please spare little Everly and give to her a beautiful life, Father. Draw her into the Lord Jesus Christ and grant that when she grows up enough to understand what she's doing, that she'll trust Christ herself. And Father, I plead with you that you'll work with the, the kids in both the schools, that you'll teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ and how important Jesus is. Please bring them to the knowledge of the Savior and to those who have yet to understand who Jesus is, you'll make him very clear. And Father, those that are caught up with the complaining and the griping, the usual stuff that goes on, especially this time of year, ask that in Jesus' name you'll grant them a good, a good sense of repentance and that gratitude will be expressed. Thank you now for what you're going to do as you work your way through each of our lives right here. We, we recognize tonight, Father, that we are children of God. And we want to do those things that are pleasing in your sight. So we ask that by your spirit, you convict us and convince us and, and have us uh, work our way through the, the things that you want for us. Help us to be the children of God. And I'm going to thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Hope that you uh, were able to get something from the lesson there. Let's go reckon. <laughs> I reckon that'll be good enough.